for July 26th, 2010. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 108. Casper was dead the whole time. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From the left coast of America, I'm your host, Matthew Rather, here with the panel tonight to overthink so many things. Uh, but first, in honor of Salt opening this weekend to, uh, I think, number two, number two numbers, right, uh, behind the second weekend of Inception, um, it is uh, the question of the week, if you had to cast yourself in the movie of your life with an actor of the opposite sex whom would you cast uh to star as you um this is of course assuming that you star in the movie of your life and and uh not someone like you know uh your mother or your husband or heroine or something like that is the star of your life if you are the star <laughs> what opposite gendered uh actor plays you um Natalie Baseman joins us again after a long hiatus on the podcast. Natalie, who are you gonna who are you gonna cast? Well, first off, it's cl- I am so glad to be back. It is always a pleasure. Uh, so, first person to pop into my mind, Jason Schwartzman. He is adorable. He is Jewish. He can be funny, but play the serious. And I think if I could choose anyone, uh, that's who I would choose. However. Uh, let's say I was writing the story and that's who I wanted to pitch. Uh, the studio would probably end up going for Seth Rogen. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I think, I think Seth Rogen could totally play me as well. Uh, but, uh, he may not, he could definitely bring in the crowds. Uh, I don't know if he could do the emotional punches, of the hardships that my life has had, uh, not that I've had so many traumatic things, but uh, but uh, so that's what we'll go with. Jason so Schwartzman, Seth okay. Rogen in the wings. Yeah. So you're not you're not going. I I think we're going to notice some trends here. Let's uh, let's push on. Joining us by cell phone is Peter Fenzel. Yo yo, how's it going, dude? Uh, it's going very well, dude. Excellent. Well. I will answer your question by saying that for a movie of my life, I will accept nothing but the best, which is why I insist, nay demand, that in my movie I be played by Dame Judi Dench. (laughs) She is the only actress I know of with both the range and the penchant for slumming necessary to... uh, if If I were to pick somebody from my own... A, like roughly my own age, not even really, I guess sort of not, as in not 50 years older than myself and not an old lady, I would probably, I was thinking about this, I'd probably try to go like another way and see a different sort of interpretation of my life. And I'd probably pick Selma Blair, I think, if it weren't Dame Judi Dench. Because Dame Judi Dench, I don't think would actually do it. But Selma Blair might. <laughs> and I'd like to see somebody who has a reputation for being somewhat serious play me, who I think on paper would look like a pretty ridiculous person. So it would be interesting to see the tension played out and how the actor would choose to interpret the role, I think. Uh, I'd have to make sure they can swim, though, because of the flooding. But, uh, <laughs> that would be the climactic scene if I were right right now. It would be like my basement flood, which would be a horrible maelstrom. It would be like White Squall for Chris O'Donnell. Uh, so. the, um, right. Yeah, Pete, can you give us a, a – I'll, I'll note for our listeners that the Pete Aid fundraiser continues on overthinkingit.com. You can make a donation by clicking on the PayPal link and just in the notes designated, designated for Pete. And thanks to the gener- generosity of the listeners who have uh, donated so far, uh, you have purchased, Pete, so far, one Skype headset. Uh, so, Pete – uh, Yeah, you, they have purchased it for me. I have not purchased it yet, but that is what <laughs> that money is earmarked for. So the little thermometer is rising, uh, and I do really <laughs> sincerely thank people who helped me out. I do appreciate it. Yeah, and and keep keep the donations coming. Mark Lee is working on a charity single as we speak. <laughs> That'd called, be awesome. Uh, yeah, it's called uh, "My Heart Is in the Basement" or something. Yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> and my broken computer as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have not yet raised enough to, uh, to buy you a new computer. I'm afraid the, it may may. Oh, that's okay. And we should put a um, should put a, uh, a thing like a um, you know a memorial sticker or something 
for the uh, uh, for the the listeners who donated who donated to you. Anyway, let's press on. Josh McNeil is next in alphabetical order. Hey, Josh. Hey, how you doing? I am all right, thanks. Uh, I'm going to go with Christina Hendricks because Good choice. Uh, I think uh, the the overwhelming attraction I have to men and the curviness uh, that I epitomize uh, would really can really only be handled by uh, by Miss Hendricks from Mad Men. Yeah, you are a you are a um, you are a, a bosomy man, aren't you? It's true. Yes, <laughs> I also look fantastic in red cocktail dresses. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and old fashioned. Excellent. Jordan Stokes is next. Gabor Sidibe. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, like, using that as a joke is really terrible and mean spirited. But let me say, like, in all of her red carpet appearances, she seems to be happier than anyone else in Hollywood. And I feel like some of that might attach to me through a kind of osmosis. So that that would be my choice. <laughs> I was thinking Callista Flockhart for you, Stokes, but I think you've chosen well. <laughs> they're, well, they're so similar in type. Well, it's his thing for Harrison Ford, too. That's true. Uh, and then I, I am going last. I, I, this may be a facile choice, but I will accept none other than overthinking it Muse and It Girl Academy Award winner Tilda Swinton to play me uh, in my life. <laughs> Though she were- actually... That's perfect casting. <laughs> <laughs> Though she resembles, uh, she resembles Conan O'Brien far more than she resembles me. I, um, uh, she must be me. She must uh, inhabit the corridors of my life. So we went, we went a couple different ways. Uh, Natalie, who dropped off the call temporarily, she, you see, she went with, with Jason Schwartzman instead of like Matt Damon or, or something, right? Do you try to go much, much better looking than yourself? Yes. Well, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, you, uh, you know, you choosing Christina Hendricks. Um, well, I was going for Kirstie Alley, but then, yeah, I just, I switched there at the end. Pete went much, much more, <laughs> Pete went much, much more distinguished. Oh, yeah, Selma Blair is definitely just someone of significant note. <laughs> I mean, I think that oh, you mean we can... James Dench? Look, we, we, I have we, certain we, answers. I have like a bag of answers to these questions that I can answer pretty much any question that you give me at the beginning of one of these podcasts with. One of those, I don't want to like pull back the curtain or anything, but basically if I answer a question, if there's a question, there's like a 70% chance Dame Judi Dench is like a, a totally suitable and acceptable answer. So I've got to have a backup just in case I need to stall and have more time to think. Um, uh, <laughs> excuse me, I'm a little sick, so if I cough, I apologize. Sorry, Pete. Sorry you're a little sick. That's yeah, all right. It's the damp yeah. in the basement. Watch out for the black mold. It's all around us. <laughs> like you, you know, you, it, it you, looks just like regular mold. What? You, you joke about that, and yet, like, there totally is black mold in his basement. So, so keep those contributions rolling in. <laughs> <laughs> we won't say we've been here all night. We're men in the phones. Call one eight hundred Pete Aid. No, well, don't uh, call because I'm on the phone right now doing the podcast. But when they call, it'll be tomorrow because they'll be listening to the podcast. Yeah, I'll be listening to the podcast okay. in the car or on, right, the way, on the way to work. Where do you listen to the Overthinking It podcast? I'm actually, I'm curious about that. Like on the train, at your computer, at your desk, uh, on an iPod at work, in the car, uh, let us know. And if you want to join the conversation, the way to do that is to email us at podcast at overthinkingit.com or call 203-285-6401. That's 203-285-6401. We have a couple... Um, uh, we have a couple um, uh, uh, voicemails, but we're we're saving them up, and then we do, we do them all together on a listener feedback show. So if you don't get an answer right away, uh, that's why. Keep listening, and you will get an answer. Now, uh, this this question today was in honor of of Salt, uh, the Angelina Jolie uh, vehicle that uh, you know is the number two movie in America this weekend. Um, that uh, features her as a an American spy who may potentially be a Russian spy, um, and I uh, I saw this film this weekend. Uh, I thought it was a totally serviceable action movie uh, along the lines <laughs> of Night and Day or The A Team. In fact, it was not quite as good as The A Team. And and it, in fact, if I had to rank. This summer's totally serviceable action movies, I would rank them in this order. Number one is The A-Team. Uh, number two would be Salt. And number three, uh, at the very bottom of the totally serviceable continuum, uh, is Night and Day. You, you wouldn't put Iron Man 2 on that continuum anywhere? No, Iron Man 2 was good. I mean, well, no, I don't know. Iron Man 2 wasn't as good as Iron Man 1. 
It was a, I, th- I think, perfectly serviceable action movie is an excellent description. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> did what it was supposed to do, you know? See, I have, a, I, have a, I have a kind of epistemological question here. Wouldn't you say that the most perfectly serviceable action movie is actually the one that falls right in the middle? Yes, right? I suppose. I suppose so. Uh, to take to take uh, uh, perfectly to mean the ideal example of something. Yeah, yeah. but it's a, so it's like, a term that defines its subject object positively. Like, is there a quality, a sort of noumenal quality of serviceableness, or is it defined in sort of partial negativity and opposition in like a dialectic with movies that are good versus bad? Did I, over, did I just overthink your mind? <laughs> I, I say that uh, that serviceableness is a uh, is the what it means to it's it's its own category. But to be serviceable means to be good enough without actually approaching good. So uh, so like to be to be too good is to be less serviceable because it's less perfectly described by the term serviceable. Right. And, and I think that the, the thing that was at issue, Jordan, wasn't it was the, the word perfectly right in the phrase perfectly serviceable, because uh, the, the more perfectly serviceable you get, that is to say, the more uh, the closer you approach, you, uh, you know, asymptotically approach mediocrity, um, mm-hmm. you know, the more the more medium you are. Right, exactly, and I, I think that uh, that perfection doesn't perfection inequality doesn't necessarily imply goodness. You know, like I think that uh, that the Jonas Brothers are perfect examples of their type, but that doesn't that doesn't mean anything good about them necessarily. No, yeah, absolutely. Um, For example, Ebola is a perfect example of a you know massively debilitating illness. Yeah, yeah, so it's not and, inherently good. And, and often it's said that the shark is nature's perfect killing machine. It's sort of a teaser for our Shark Week coverage, which will begin in a little bit. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that, that doesn't mean that, uh, that the shark has better qualities. It just means that it's better at what it does. I thought Angelina Jolie was a perfect killing machine. <laughs> yeah. well, she is, is very toothy. Did you know that Angelina <laughs> you, Jolie Eddie... used to regrow teeth throughout her, her, her adult life? <laughs> Have, have you, you seen Tomb Raider 2, The Cradle of Life, where she has a fist fight with a shark? I feel like it's did, apt. I think it's appropriate. Did you know that Angelina Jolie must continue moving forward at all times or she risks drowning? <laughs> does, um, I, does the shark punch back or is the shark trying to bite her? The shark is attempting to bite her. She's underwater, punches it in the face, and it like flees in terror and humiliation. Isn't that? Can't you punch a shark in the nose, and that and that makes it swim away? You I know, think they just tell us that so that beach communities can continue yeah. to function. MythBusters <laughs> took that one on, and they were like, the answer they came up with is, this doesn't really seem to work. However, if the shark is bearing down on you, punching it in the face is probably slightly preferable to simply allowing it to kill you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> like, it, it didn't work real well, but it, put in that situation, they would totally try it. They really got, so, they, so they got punched tr- in the nose and it is a perfectly serviceable way of yeah, dealing right. with shark attacks. Right. <laughs> um, so uh, I'm, I'm glad we got I'm glad we got Natalie back. Uh, her internet had had crapped out there for a second because I want the reason I wanted to bring up Salt is that Salt was a uh, was a movie that was written for a male star. Tom Cruise was approached to play it, uh, and this I I had heard this and I just had it confirmed by IMDb when I looked it up. Uh, and but uh, it's Angelina Jolie. Uh, actually in the film. And it just, it struck me that um, there are, are a number of uh, uh, movie parts that I can think of like this, uh, and that number is three. One is Salt. Uh, the second is the Demi Moore part in A Few Good Men. And the third is is Ripley, right? Which was written, I think, was was written for an assumed male lead, and then uh, uh, cast with Sigourney Weaver. So, um, is this? I mean, you know, I, mean uh, 
I, I just was checking. We were talking about this in our pre our pre show notes. Oh, I, I yeah, checked. Yeah. Uh, Alien was actually written specifically non gendered. There's a, a thing at the beginning of the script where it says Ripley and the entire cast are like non gender specific and should be cast however the director feels like it. Oh, I which see. Is, which is, so it's it's very similar though. I think we can still include it in the conversation. Well, it's. I mean, I guess I'm, it's. I want to put that disclaimer in like a very sycophantic way in the front of every screenplay I write. I'd be like, anything the director wants to do about this movie, you can put it anywhere you want, you can cast it, you can spend as much money on it as you want, uh, you know, you can put your own name on all the furniture, this is, this is you, baby, this is all you, I'm just, I'm just the magician, I'm just making the magic happen. So, so Pete, is saying, as, uh, Pete is saying, as Sarah Michelle Geller said to Ryan Phillippe in Cruel Intentions, you can put it anywhere you want, but uh, Evelyn Salt... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Way to keep it no, progressive, Matt. Keep it progressive. That, could, that could even be a dude's name if he's British, right? Right. Like, even, I, I he would be that. he would be Evelyn Salt, but yeah, oh, okay. exactly, exactly, right? Like uh, like the famous British novelist Evelyn Waugh, who is a dude. <laughs> 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 That's the silliest last name of any major novelist, I believe. Waugh. W-A-U-G-H. Um, I was just Waugh, like, dude. <laughs> Awkward. I think of uh, Monty Python's sort of like characteristic react- reaction to female beauty. Like, waugh. Right? <laughs> um, well, I guess it says, I mean, I guess it it is kind of the same to say the characters are non-gendered and then they were cast with with uh or then Ripley was cast as a woman and i think that that like that goes to something about the kind of default sexism uh you know the sexism of the default right uh uh the idea that that being male is is the default gender but does it i mean does it uh does this go you know um one of the one of the most durably popular posts on overthinking it is uh, uh, Mulowski's uh, is Shana's post uh, why strong female characters are bad for women. Uh, where, if I can radically oversimplify her argument, she decries a trend towards um, strong female characters who do things like like uh, fix cars or like judo chop, and uh, preferring instead to see strong characters, comma female, who are uh, fully realized, complex uh, humans uh, who happen to be female, rather than. Um, uh, you know, rather than hot sex symbols uh, who have the ability of, you know, uh, martial arts or nuclear physics or something um, it's, like Christmas, it's arguably like Christmas the, Jones. Yeah. The, the same kind of thing that we were talking about right at the beginning, right. That, uh, that a strong character in the sense of strong that, uh, that she wants is not going to be one with zero flaws, right. That like a perfect character doesn't uh, approach perfection because that makes them less of a character. Right, doesn't approach a perfect character does not approach character perfection. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to dumb um, this down, you mean you know this is why Superman is less interesting than Batman, right? Exactly, exactly. And uh, and I think I don't know. I don't know enough about comic books to to say that to know whether this is true. But I'm going to go ahead and say it anyway. That Supergirl is less interesting than Batgirl. That's definitely true because Supergirl <laughs> is kind of dumb. Because she has to fight that witch. Like, she gets given, like, an uncharacteristically sexist villain to deal with, too. Like, even more so than Batgirl. And then Batgirl is also, isn't she, spoilers, Commissioner Gordon's daughter most of the time? Which is, like, a really cool, complex relationship between, like, Batman and Commissioner Gordon. And, and, uh, like, there's sort of the secrecy and there's this idea of this the independence that comes from, like, sort of transgressively associating with the men of your choice rather than the men of your designation. Right, which is a sort of small mark of, of independence, but at the same time is sort of ironically juxtaposed along with like setting your value in accordance with any man and instead of in accordance with yourself. Plus, she has a utility belt that's really slung across her hips in like a very dramatic fashion, as opposed <laughs> to like a little baby doll T-shirt, which is just kind of silly. So, that so, girl well, is I, a woman. I, girl is I, mean, I, I think a, ba- a baby doll T-shirt actually would be a very good crime-fighting outfit, right? Don't you want as few encumbrances from clothes as you can, uh, as you can have? If it depends. Yeah, it depends on who's making the baby doll T-shirt, because sometimes the baby doll is just not nearly as comfortable as a unisex cut. Got uh, it. 
Okay. I, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> and you have to be comfortable. The thing is, you know, baby dolls, sure, they can be. But if they're ringer tees, sometimes it's too tight on the arms. Uh, if your boobs are big, then sometimes you're going to have to go up to a bigger size that and that's just going to lower your self-esteem, whereas on a, U, a unisex size, you could go for a medium, uh, whereas on a baby doll, you'll have to go for, you know, an XL. I'm just putting that out there, guys. I'm just getting no, the... I mean, I think this is the point. Well, because T-shirts by their sort of nature are made out of materials that are that are chosen because they can't really be made to a cut very effectively, right? Like, like they, if you wanted a shirt with a cut, if you go back to sort of the genesis of the T-shirt, if you wanted a shirt with a cut, you would get a shirt that required starch or something that had a collar or something along those lines. But T-shirt is a shirt with, like, it's just T-shaped. It doesn't have as much shape. And while we've tried to develop, like, paper T-shirts, it's like this idea of designer jeans, right, which are made for gold miners, Right, it's like, it's like there's a tension between the essential qualities of the thing that you're trying to make that you really can't get away from, and this aspiration that you're doing to make it some, like something that it isn't. So, like a fitted, contoured T-shirt, like had design problems pretty much all the time. Uh, and um, I mean, one might work for a given person, but as a sort of product line, it's it just looks like there's a discontinuity and an incongruity there. Well, I mean, yes, I would, it, and yeah. also if your boobs are too big, you have to go up size up, and that just stinks. And then, and, and then, honestly, no. the, uh, exactly. The and then you're, Josh then you're... knows about that, right? What? Because <laughs> <laughs> Josh is curvy like Christina Hendricks. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, well, there's a notional problem. I mean, like fashion theorists, Pete, wouldn't they say that you know uh, strong designers exploit the irony inherent in the desi- in the uh, the conceptual irony inherent in designer genes for uh, you know uh, artistic effect, and that and and that uh, you know uh, it is uh, similar to the irony of kind of pre distressed uh, genes. Yeah, I, I think that's certainly safe to say. But I also think that, that there's a different relationships and different sort of, you know, readership uh, of the clothes, if you will, where the, the tension um, becomes more apparent and, and sort of um, more onerous in kind of everyday utility situations, right? Like, like yes, it's great to have an artistic expression for out of your clothes, but if, if they don't fit you, then it, it, it has a further problem. And I guess that it's kind of a precon- – there's a lot of preconditions to the kind of expression in – apparel that comes from really high-level thinking and fashion design. And one of them is that, like, you can spend, like, a fair amount of money on your clothes, yet you're going to put them on in, like, the way they are intended to be put on, that you are going to choose them deliberately all the time, like, make an active choice as to what clothes you're going to wear, you're, that you're never going to, like, grab one off the top of the shelf, right? Um, and that, like, when you're wearing it, it's going to be in, like, the ideal state of care and of form that the designer would want you to have it in, um, even if that form is distressed. Uh, I mean, I guess people might design clothes that age well and which sort of gives you some, wing- some wiggle room on those things. But, like, you know, there's certain shirts that I have that I almost never wear because if I put match them with the wrong pants, they look really stupid, and I'm not confident that, like, in the heat of the moment, I'm going to, like, grab the things that match. You know what I mean? So I kind of pushed them off the side. I was like, this is a high-risk shirt. Like, I'm not really as interested in this shirt. So I think while there is an artistic dichotomy that's being explored, where you're saying, oh, we're using a material for a use other than what it was intended, like, that does introduce practical problems that in turn introduce further consequences in the artistic understanding and expression and appreciation of the garment. Well, I think it's about context, isn't it, right? That, that like, uh, a... Um uh, maximal choice in apparel belongs to a, a leisure class with a great deal of wealth to spend on things like expensive clothes. And that, like, um, and, and then at that level, your clothes, which are meant to be a, a convenience or a tool, you know, to protect you from the elements, uh, that is to make it possible to survive in places where you could not survive naked, um, become actually kind of an encumbrance in themselves, uh, right? That they, that, uh, you know, it's hard to put, um, it's hard to put these things on sometimes, and that when those yep. when those kind of uh, when those tropes those uh, apparel tropes kind of uh, work their way down, you know, uh, through kind of a a, a sense of aspiration, um, 
into uh, into mass market clothes, that's when I mean that's when we approach kind of uh, what what you're calling sort of uh, uh, maximal incongruence or, or maximal discomfort in the um, in the irony between uh, uh, the purported um, uh, and the actual uh, uh, utility. But, yeah. I mean, uh, I would only add on top of that that um, with the Industrial Revolution, you definitely have the democratization of fashion to a degree where it, you know, fashion is not something that can just be enjoyed by the upper classes, but it's something that can be dispersed further across social strata. But a second aspect of industrialization and the sort of social impact of industrialization over time is specialization, right, is that people get less comfortable being capable of doing a lot of different things, right? So before industrialization, I might not have any nice clothes because they're too expensive. But after industrialization, I may have nice clothes, but I might not um, be as familiar with, like, the care and mending of them. I may, and I may, over the course of generations, like, I may not, like, give as much of a crap about them. Or, like, like, if I had only one, like, muslin shirt, before industrialization, I know how to mend it. I know how to take care of it. I know how to wear it. Like, and I do all these things while I was taking care of hens, and like while I was taking care of pigs, and like while I was also like making shoes, you know, like and all this other stuff. Um, but now I go on the computer and make work of marginal value, and like that's what I do. And like I don't know how to fix my shirts. Like I don't even necessarily know how to wear them. And so like the there's a there's a tension there too that industrialization has had on the way that people relate to their clothing. So does anyone else think he would have been value. a Fairly serviceable value. What? <laughs> Does anyone else think that Pete would have been a priest before the Industrial Revolution rather than a pig farmer? <laughs> yeah, probably. I would have been a priest. Yeah, I could. I could tell some jokes. But you know what? I'll spare people's feelings. That I, I think. I think. Uh, ironically, he would have. Be, he would have been a tailor and spent all of his time just mending shirts as like a specialized trade. <laughs> and like, if you, if you had if you had shown him a hen and a pig, he would have not have known what to do with it. He would have needed to go into the market day and and trade his muslin shirts for them. So I listen to a lot of podcasts uh, that are produced by a guy named Alex Lindsay, who is a, a sort of a digital cinema artist and uh, runs a business called Pixelcore. And he told a story on one of these once about um, doing a, doing a house exchange uh, with people in Africa because he uh, he's his sort of digital his sort of CGI effects company I guess is making inroads in Africa as kind of an untapped labor market for you know people doing CGI stuff. Um, and uh, and he was uh, he was doing this house exchange with someone from Africa, and so there was an African guest living in in his house, and uh, a person for, uh, who came from a developing country. I forget uh, specifically the one. And uh, the coffee grinder broke uh, while while the guest was using it, and so the guest, uh, you know, apparently spent all kinds of, of time over the course of like two weeks going to repair shops, trying to get the $15 coffee grinder repaired, uh, right? Because, uh, because uh, that person had a different set of assumptions about what to do with mechanical equipment. Um, and wh- whereas you or I might say, well, it's a $15 thing, the, the time, it's not worth it to invest the time in trying to repair it, uh, you know, throw it out or donate it to, to someone for whom it is worth trying to repair, like, uh, you know, I don't know, Salvation Army or something, and, uh, and, and just buy a new one. This seems to rhyme conceptually with the, the march of progress as you describe it, Pete. Right. <laughs> so, so speaking of what to do when you have a, a complex undertaking that isn't working because there's a crucial part that's missing or broken, do you just scrap the whole thing or do you try to swap out that part? Uh, the movie Salt, in which uh, <laughs> Jolie, thank you for bringing thank you for bringing us back home. Replace Tom Cruise. What I want to re- what I want to know about that. Um, the interesting thing about the alien example, right, is that. Apparently, it was designed so that any person could play any of those roles, whether it's male or female. And after deciding that uh, they were going to have Ripley become Ellen Ripley and be a woman, they didn't really change the role around a whole lot. Like, especially if you go into Alien 2 and 3 and 4, uh, Ripley gets more and more feminized. But in Alien 1, if you imagine a man reading that that exact same script, not a lot changes. You know, if you imagine a woman in any of those other roles, they don't do a whole lot that's like specifically male. What I really want to know, speaking of someone who did not see Salt, um, 
she saw. Uh, <laughs> what I want to know is how we can turn this entire podcast into a bunch of salt-related puns. No, what I want to know is, do you think that after they swapped out Angelina Jolie for Tom Cruise, right, uh, did they change the role to make it more of a kind of scare quotes chick role? For example, did they pepper it with male love interests? Mm-hmm. Uh, did they shake up the story in a shaker? <laughs> did they add a bunch of sodium and chloride to the to the special effects? <laughs> Does the plot have a recurring crystalline structure? <laughs> Uh, um, well, no, I mean, it was not, was the plot about kind of like gooey romantic lady business? No, not at all. She has a husband, uh, in the, um, you know, she has a, a, a husband in the movie, but it's not, it could just as easily be a wife, you know, it's not, um, uh, a thing like, uh, it's not a thing where, where the gender really matters. I, you know, I don't know if any of the dialogue was was changed. I mean, a lot of the time when any star comes on, you know, a star has a writer who will uh, sort of do a punch up on, on the star's dialogue so that, uh, I don't know, so that it's in accordance with the brand. But no, it it didn't seem particularly, it didn't seem particularly gendered though. um, There was not, I mean, uh, all of these things kind of leave out, uh, uh, leave out like uh, romance and leave out sort of relationships and that whole side of life, right? But I mean, how does that connect? I'm confused. Well, th- uh, that is to say that 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 would make it too too girly, right? Like uh, it, it would cease to be a strong character female if like if she got if she got all melty uh, over over romance and stuff, right? I mean, I'd not say- necessarily. It would be it would be a strange action movie if someone who has been acting like you know, like Bruce Willis in Die Hard, uh, suddenly switches gears and uh, and just like swoons for fifteen minutes. But I think you that- mean like when he reunites with his wife and hugs her, and they get back together after they're almost divorced. Yeah, yeah, or or when Reginald Bell Johnson kills the guy and the orchestra, sw- like you know, the violins come in and he's he's finally like rekindled his relationship with his gun. Um, always felt like a jarring <laughs> moment in Die Hard. Um, <laughs> you know that that I feel like is uh, is bad, but just like having having a love interest as such or an interpersonal relationship as such isn't necessarily girly, is it? Well, the relationships are what makes the story compelling, right? So whether it's romantic or not, you know, what are the motivations behind this superhero or action star doing whatever he does or she does? Oh, his parents were killed or their daughter was kidnapped or something. So that's a relationship. It may not be lovey-dovey, but there is some kind of a a interpersonal connection behind the whole thing. Sure, sure. Yeah, and, and those are really, really important in any in any case. Well are, except I mean, for Vin Diesel movies. <laughs> yeah, right. Actually right. are they I mean are they really important? We would talk we kind of talk about things like that about, you know, the superiority of the plain vanilla law and order style of writing where there are no where the characters have no backstories. Right, which, I think that- is, which is better. Like, I, I, I don't want to say, and this is the example I always use, but I don't want, like, in the in the fourth act, right, like some sort of close up of a guy while the you know uh, while the the violin of personal confession uh, you know shimmers in in uh, in uh, you know consonant arpeggios behind him uh, saying. I remember when I when my parents were killed when I was a, you know and that's why I became a cop. Yeah, okay, you know so what I mean. Is, while the while the, bull- while the while the while the contrabassoon of truth uh, underscores right. the underscores the the uh, proceedings. So this is something interesting, right? Because I mean, I do prefer in Law and Order the episodes that have nothing to do with the uh, the characters' personal lives, and when every so often they do have like a very special episode where you learn something about a character, it always seems kind of kind of terrible. But I think that Law and Order is a very particular kind of show. Drier, more utilitarian writing that you're talking about works admirably. I don't know that action movies can really pull that off unless they want to be something like crank 
where it's so clearly about sort of the gag and the stunt and the, you know, the physical swagger and everything that uh, trying to hang emotional resonance onto the story just sort of doesn't apply. Well, I'm thinking about the Bourne movies. Like, there, there are three Bourne movies, unless I'm missing one. And I've seen them all, and I, they are very action-packed. And it seems that the emotional bits of it, the relationship was in the first one. So they kind of got that out of the way. And I think it works. It doesn't work in the fourth act. It doesn't work at the end if they're going to put... Uh, you know, Cupid's flying around and a big speech and a running through the airport scene. Like, that doesn't work in action scenes because that's not an action movie. But usually there is something at the beginning, right? Or some Mm -hmm. kind of nod to something that's been lost. Your Supermans, your Batmans, your your Spidermans, it always happens at the beginning, and then they let the action take hold. Sure, sure, right. Like, you you have a reason for there not to be an emotional scene at the end because that character has been removed somehow, right? Like, either they're actually dead or they can never be together because, like, she can never know my true secret or he can never know my true secret. And then, like, that gives weight to all of the purely physical, you know stunts essentially that you're watching otherwise okay fair enough fair enough and i think it can be done in a good way as in as in the Bourne movies or in a bad way um you know as in the kind of most cynical exploitation of this as a plot device right sure yeah absolutely um i do just uh two quick things on this topic the one uh, i just want to throw in one is that it is interesting how much movies are really, and popular movies in particular, are really tied down and married to this idea that people's motivations emerge and, and the things that they choose to do emerge very specifically from specific things that have happened in their past that have like normative associations with what's going on. Because, I, I mean, in my experience, that's not how people work. You know, they don't like say, oh man, this, at this time five years ago, you know, I crossed the street and I got hit by a car. Like, now I therefore I will choose to like walk around this uh, ice cream truck because I have like a feeling of anxiety around cars. It's more like this time five years ago I was hit by a car and like now I'm getting in a fight with the person who delivers my newspaper and I have no idea why. You know what I mean? Sure. It's like like the the sort of associations with the past tend to be much more chaotic in practice and and much more unintended um, and, and much more about sort of who the person becomes and less about like the sort of needness to, to fulfill the things that happen in reality. The great cinematic counterexample of what you're talking about is Lola Run, right? Uh, Franco-Potente connection to the Bourne movies, where, like, it's, it's sort of one of the big points of that movie is that the events that happen to you have no bearing on your future whatsoever, you know, or yeah. at least not in any way yeah. that you would understand. Yeah, yeah, that that seems good. And the second point I wanted to make was we were just talking about this this weekend too. Is did anybody else see the Bill Pullman Casper movie? Um, of Casper the Friendly Ghost. Yeah, uh, and you remember how yes. they go into a lot of trouble to talk about how Casper has a backstory where he was a child who died. And you remember how much of a downer that was? Now much worse than the movie. <laughs> I don't know. It's so incredibly sad. It's like you don't want to know that Casper the Friendly Ghost was like a child who died young. And it's like you know, it just—it's like I don't care. I don't want to know. Like it's too sad. I don't know. Wow. Well, Sometimes, actually, yeah. Pete, well, actually, I'm gonna. Well, actually, on the contrary, I—I mm-hmm. I loved that. I love that, and, and maybe that's just showing me. Being a chick who likes emotional things, but <laughs> or, a or maybe it just shows that I have an uncomfortable relationship with the deaths of children, and I don't yeah. know how to process them properly. Sure, but it like it. I loved getting that backstory, and even as a child, just being able to connect with Christina Ricci and. And her connecting to this ghost because her mom had died and and they were able to connect on a level that she hadn't been able to connect with any of her friends at school. And she was having, like, problems connecting with her dad until her dad became a ghost, right? And then he got drunk with the other three ghosts and then they were dancing (laughs) and Devin Sawa came back as Casper but as a dude and they were floating and it was so romantic. Uh, sp- 
Spoiler this movie alert. Is so good, by the way. This is not a terrible movie at all, as you can tell from this description. Um, and it's, no, no. I don't think I have to worry about spoiler alerts if it came out 15 years ago. The, um... <laughs> you had your chance. Your chance it is turns over. Out, it turns out that Casper was dead the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Does this partake in the in the fallacy of the the fortunate cancer? That is to say, uh, the the idea that that other people's sufferings and misfortunes are uh, great opportunities to you for you to learn a valuable lesson about life. I mean, does the Casper movie? Does all entertainment I mean, like does Oedipus Rex fall to that <laughs> that problem? <laughs> no, it pretty much sucks for Oedipus. I mean, he he finds out things, but it pretty much sucks for him at the end. Still, well, no, but like, but we as audience members are meant to have been enlightened, right? Oh yeah, but I I you know I mean I mean the character you know oh it's so great that Grandma has cancer because you know it's taught me how to love again or things like this. I no, mean, I don't like, think Casper oh, is like okay. that. I think. Casper is actually really sad and, like, takes the death of Casper and, like, people's deaths fairly seriously, which is what's jarring about the movie, because I mostly remember the song from, like, the old cartoons, like, and not, like, thinking about Casper as, like, a human soul in limbo or, like, you know, tied to our earth, never able to rest. I think of Casper as, like, something that happens around chilly willy time, right? Like, it's a kind of proposition. Doomed to Um, walk the the earth for a spell until his baser deeds done in his (laughs) days of nature are burned off. You know what gets really messed up if you start thinking about ghosts as persisting human souls? Booberry cereal. <laughs> oh, gross. <laughs> no, it's like uh, as as you're uh, it's actually a, a spiritual practice to eat booberry cereal because as your flesh is nourished by eating the flesh of other animals, so your soul is nourished by eating the souls of uh, <laughs> <laughs> every one of us in our youth was Shang Tsung. Pac-Man becomes like Anubis, the devourer of souls. Yeah. <laughs> Although like he's he's a terrible Anubis because the souls keep coming back. Right? It's true. Um the uh I guess it is it's the psychological determinism I object to in in backstory backstoriness. I mean, there are a lot, and the Bourne movies do this pretty well. Like, and they don't tip their hand until the third movie that, like, the reason that, the, the reason that Matt Damon, uh, when he's disguising his love interest or when he's disguising the girls in all the movies, dyes their hair black and cuts it into a short bob is, uh, is because that was Julia Stiles' haircut before he entered the Treadstone program, right? Like, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a nice little touch. Anyway, um, yeah, I sorry. I had a fight with my paperboy this morning, and and it's kind of uh, it's kind of weighing on. <laughs> right, right. See the psychological determinism, right? Like, and and now, now you can't talk about uh, about current events and pop culture in the art section of your paper because you flash back to that trauma. Yeah, exactly. I can't. You know what? When I when I was a when I was a child, my whole family was killed by a radio DJ, and that's why I'm a podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, what I don't understand is how you can have a fight with a app on an iPad. <laughs> <laughs> like a new your New York reader. That's what you're talking about. Your New York Times reader? That's I don't get paper boy. Matt keeps a series of animatronic surrogate bodies in his apartment, which he then like has his apps like flow into that he can communicate with them on a physical level. Right, I buy. I buy, I buy uh, real dolls by the gross, but I use them <laughs> not for not for like weird sexual purposes, but as uh, as sort of punching bags as I as I enact my rage on that <laughs> on that uh, on that one that one radio broadcaster who's responsible for the death of my <laughs> the death Although, of my family. Yeah, I did. I and remember like, going through the video store and reading the backs of all of the straight to video Steven Seagal movies, and they all start with like. After his family is killed, a former special forces guy. After his daughter is kidnapped, like a former special forces guy. Well, this is. I mean, this is. I think. It, I mean, I think that there's a little bit of. Um, 
there's a little bit of autobiography going on, right? Like, if you believe that uh, that art is at some level a form of compensation for something, um, uh, for something lost, uh, and superheroism is uh, is often framed as a form of compensation for something lost, like you know one's parents or or some such. Um, uh, or one's you know long lost love or or something like that. Then Childhood. really, yeah, right. A lot of those, a lot of those things, uh, a, a lot of these stories become like the portrait of a portrait of an artist as a young superhero, where uh, where there's a kind of artistic allegory, an allegory of creation going on with um, or or an allegory of like world creating power. Uh, you know what I mean? That goes on. Uh, that is ultimately about um, the artistic process. That could also be just a personal draw for me is I am most drawn to anything that is origin story or how someone got to where they are. All the books I've been reading in the past couple months have all been autobiographies and memoirs of mostly comedians of uh, trying to get where they're going. So that could just be a personal thing that I like. I really like the origin story because that's not so much of how I would like to emulate it, but I want to know, uh, what are going to be the best things for Jason Schwartzman to act out 20 years from now? (laughs) (laughs) Well, autobiography, I mean, autobiography adds yet another layer to it because, you know, people have various kinds of interests in their own self-representation, you know, in, in different ways. I was thinking about this when I read the Steve Martin book, which I thought was a brilliant book. Uh, but he, you know, he has an interest in presenting himself in a certain way or, uh, you know, um, in, in, uh, presenting a certain kind of narrative of, of himself. Mm-hmm. I Have you just guys finished... ever come across? Oh, oh well, I was just going to say, I, I, Steve Martin's next on my list, but I just finished the Sarah Silverman autobiography and I thought it was very interesting because it did not make me like her comedy anymore, if not just kind of instilled that I, it's not my cup of tea, but it made me like her as a person infinitely more so it may even though they want to try and get you to like them it may not be in the right way that they intended so have we come across what pete oh have you ever come across songs my mother taught me the book not the dvorak piece no Uh, songs my mother taught me is the autobiography of marlon brando which is kind of a bit of a bonkers book um, where he sort of like muses open ended <laughs> yeah it's um I, I came across it when I was working in a used book warehouse uh, i 'll describe it the way Wikipedia describes it just uh, to sort of um, set the stage it 's not so much a collection of described chronological events as it is a medium for brando 's thoughts and beliefs all voiced through a diverse array of topics. Particularly later on in the book, he intersperses stories from both his youth and his older years. He doesn't delve into himself more than he needs to, rather the people who shape his life. Notably, little to no mention is made of his wives or children. Uh, so it's, um, as, far, as far as autobiographies go, I think of that one as kind of like a model of uh, one particular sort of direction you can take the autobiography, wherein like, you don't actually communicate what happened in your life, and you just sort of like like spew forth your soul blueberry style onto the page um, <laughs> and hope that someone will consume it with milk and get their daily recommended allowance of vitamin brand. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know if I can recommend the book, but like, it's like, it's like, see you about that. And then other people were like, okay, let's write you a real biography. <laughs> like you had your fun, put down the pen and go outside and we're going to do this for a little while. But, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's from 1995 when he was still kicking. So. Oh, sad story. Now, there, can, there... can can Marlon Brando can can Marlon Brando play play you in your autobiography in your uh, biopic? I, that would be great. You know what I'd love to do is I'd love to have Weird Al Yankovic doing a Marlon Brando impression. Play me in my biopic. I, wa- I wanted to ask Natalie because if you've been reading the sort of memoir stuff about comedians, like do comedians approach their lives and their histories in these uh, in these autobiographies like systematically? Because uh, it's always interesting to me the relationship between like comedy and sanity. 
right? Like, does, does comedy allow you to, like, think about the world as if it were more logical, or does it sort of open up your thinking to the chaotic side of the world? Like, here's Marlon Brando, a naturalistic actor in a school that, like, is very prized on sort of psychological associations that are fairly direct. Um, and, and his autobiography is a sort of, like, free associative piece, of, a maelstrom of craziness. Not craziness, mm-hmm. but, like, you know, it's a maelstrom. Um, and the, is Steve Martin's book, Is It More Systematic? I've been wanting to read it for a while. But in the sort of the guy who is like the wild and crazy guy with the plaid pants and the arrow through his head, is his, does his autobiography make more sense? Is there a reason for that? Well, the Sarah Silverman is quite systematic and goes fairly chronologically. She jumps around a little bit, but her storytelling is really spot on and very enjoyable. She has a few little bits and pieces of just comedy pieces in there, which I did not enjoy, but uh, her stories are really wonderful and make sense. And she seems to have a very clear view of what has informed her life and, and, and a few of her own fairly sane, cohesive theories about life, which I think are practical and and nice. And um, before hers, I read Craig Ferguson's autobiography, American on Purpose. Same thing. Absolutely great and logical and uh, just fun memoirs that are very self... I don't know. He... He's hard on himself, but in a way that any writer would be. They both come from a very uh, literary perspective, I think, trying to make a good book as well as telling their own story. If that you know, makes sense. really interesting. An interesting comedian biography is Drew Carey's book, which is, uh, it is quite systematic. I think that he comes out and says that it's written with a ghostwriter because he doesn't really know how to do that. Um, but he had a, an interesting life and in many ways a hard life. And then right in the middle, there's an entire chapter, which is nothing but a giant list of dick jokes <laughs> presented almost without explanation. My favorite of them being, like, my dick is so big, it has its own dick. And even my dick's dick is bigger than your dick. I think that's also from the comedian's perspective. I always thought that was just something mean you said to me, Stokes. <laughs> As a comedian, you can never, you know, everyone expects you to be joking, so... If you wrote a completely solid autobiography, people say, all right, well, where's the funny part? And so there it is. The um, that can be pretty angry. Like there's a in so long and thanks for all the fish. There's a scene uh, near the end where, you know, Arthur is going to have a romantic liaison and there's going to be this sort of heartfelt, uh, you know, um, sort of uh, consummation of this relationship that that, you know, you've been waiting for four books for this guy uh, to really have a meaningful relationship with another person. And uh and at the end of the chapter before Douglas Adams says, you know, those who wish to know if if Arthur Dent, you know, lives a full uh, love life of a human should read on. Uh, anyone else should skip to the last chapter, which is a good bit and has Marvin in it. <laughs> I want to. Uh, oh, oh, uh, well, is it that is it that uh, I don't think it's that uh, remarkable that Marlon Brando's. Um, or maybe this is what you were saying, Pete, that, that his autobiography is, is sort of crazy and free associative uh, because of the connection of method acting with psychoanalysis, which both kind of had their ascendancy in America round about the same time. I mean, beca- they became the kind of dominant form of psychologically realistic acting and the kind of dominant form of psychological understanding in, you know, post, post-World War II America. And the idea of sort of free associating uh, is, you know, ingrained in, in both. Um, yeah. As opposed to as opposed to uh, Steve Martin, whose kind of craziness was academic. You know, that is, there was a very studied kind of absurdism in a lot of his performances, and in a lot of like in a lot of his early jokes. Like, you know, he would tell jokes along the lines of, and I'm 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 paraphrasing and probably bastardizing it from remembering uh, remembering when I read uh, Born Standing Up, but uh, jokes along the lines of, I'm going to take you to a very special world where only two things are true. One. All chairs are green, and two, there are no chairs. 
<laughs> you know, which is, I mean, which I, I laughed out loud when I read that. I think that's a great joke. And of course I don't do it justice, but in his hands, it's hilarious. Um, but that's, you know what I mean? That's the style of Steve Martin's absurdism. There, there's, it's always kind of a comment on absurdism. Yeah. I mean, I do think that a couple of things there is that one interesting tension uh, uh, that is, is worth remarking is the tension between the performance method that goes into the method acting and the kinds of pieces that it tends to be used to support, which are often like very psychologically systematic in a fairly direct and transparent kind of way. Uh, even, and even when they're complex and good. Right, but like think about something like Streetcar Named Desire, where like, yeah, there's a fair amount of ambiguity and complexity in what's going on, but like there are events that happen and they have effects on people that affect them emotionally and they relate to each other in a way that is like comprehensible, right? Um, and yet, like to achieve the state that you need to be in in order to best express these characters, you have to delve into this like, I'll, I'll say Maelstrom again, because why not, right? It's it's Sunday, it's crazy, let's let's say Maelstrom. Mm. Um, of their own kind of emotional associations and the things that have been rattling around inside their head through psychoanalysis, that, that that's sort of an uneasy relationship that goes all the way back to what, like Stanislavski, right? Um, and like how the plays of Chekhov don't really line up with the performance style that was used to put them out there. Um, and I mean, it, <laughs> excuse me, I'm sorry about my coughing. But I mean, I guess it, comedy presents us with a different kind of relationship between material and performer, um, yeah, which, well, I, which I, mean, I just depends. find really interesting. It depends on the kind of comedy, though, right? There's, there's right. Uh, one thing that's interesting about Steve Martin is that uh, he is a deeply non-observational comic. Right. I think that one of the things that method acting tries to do is to portray psychological truth. That whatever the process, like you say, may be different things, but the idea is that these characters are behaving in a true way, and that's sort of the value of it. Um, there are comics who who work from truth. That's like what the it's funny because it's true is kind of the name of the game. Steve Martin does not seem to come from that tradition. He seems to be much more about. Uh, sort of the, the older vaudeville tradition of it's funny because it's so skillfully done. And, like, you can see, I once uh, saw a video of Steve Martin doing one of his, like, first national TV appearances on The Tonight Show where he did a, a funny magician act. I don't think he said any lines. He did things like blow bubbles out of his fly. And, that, like, that's sort of where his, his comedy comes from is, like, the, the sort of consummate craft of it. Which is, uh, like, if you wanted to get an acting style that that lines up with, it would be Laurence Olivier, maybe, right? Rather yeah, than Brando. Yeah. Or Angelina Jolie as Salt. Yeah. Or, so, so, so speaking of, um, of, uh, of well-crafted devices, or the opposite of that, the iPhone 4 drops its connection if you hold <laughs> it. Like... Do you want me to get more? Don't hate? talk about the iPhone. The first rule of overthinking a podcast is you don't talk about iPhones. The second rule of overthinking a podcast, you don't talk about iPhones. The third rule the third of overthinking rule, a... Nope. <laughs> no shirt, no shoes. <laughs> No belt buckles. Yes, thank you. That's exactly what it is. The fourth rule. I hope everybody's obeying the rules. Maelstrom. <laughs> <laughs> Maelstrom. <laughs> and female strum, just to be fair. Well, no, it's it's really person strum because it's non gender specific until it's cast as a woman uh, when they actually when they actually film the uh, uh, film the thing. <laughs> So, yeah, so Mad Men started tonight, and I'm really excited for the episode they do when they uh, design when they unveil the design of the current Canadian flag, which I believe happened in 1965. <laughs> I was all ready to talk about that. So I was like looking at events in 1965. What? <laughs> you went with that one? I was looking at like the Malcolm X assassination, the beginning of the Vietnam War, but but I think you're right. Canadian flag key. Well, I mean, look, Gambia only becomes independent once. All right. So, like, I'm sure it's important to the Gambians, and I'm sure it's important to Pete Campbell and Don Draper, and that's really what they're going to be talking about. Uh, do you want to do? Uh, do you want to do Mad Men predictions? Really, the more ridiculous, the better. <laughs> I don't know how close are we to the end of this thing. How much time are we going to be forced to talk about them? Uh, no. Very, very quickly. <laughs> okay. Uh, I I don't know. Don Draper joins the Merry Pranksters, though. That's that's a couple seasons on, I guess. 
Well, they're in 1964 now, right? Like yeah. the season starts in 1964, which is like a fun thing for us to look at because we can. They're like, oh, every once in a while, Mad Men will draw in something from uh, a major event from the news, and you'll you'll see how they all the characters react to it, like they did with the Kennedy assassination or a couple or the whole Nixon Kennedy, Ken Nixon Kennedy race. So, like, are they going to talk about like? when Roel Dahl wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory in December of 1964. And they're like, oh, I know this Danish guy. He wrote this great book, and someday it's going to be made into a movie. That's crazy talk. Like, go back to your office. I don't know if they're going to do that necessarily. But, uh, so the, the Beatles' first American concert was 65, beginning of 65. That's something they might do. Yeah, yeah I just want, I want Beatlemania. That's all I'm itching for. Yeah, you Beatlemania... Know, and I can't wait for Sally Draper to start burning her bras. So that's what I want. <laughs> nice. I think, uh, I think the entire season is Pete Campbell gets drafted, and then his rich father buys him an officership, and he's fragged uh, in Vietnam. And in fact, none Not of the possible, other characters... possible, because his, uh, his rich father was killed in a plane crash in an earlier season. I missed season. season three. Damn it. Uh, All right. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. Oh, I think God. it's all going to be about Frelimo, the organization that launched the Mozambican War of Independence. Frelimo, of course, being an acronym, Frente de Libertacao de Mozambique. And it's got a sort of Soviet flag, but with a flail instead of a sickle, because who freaking uses sickle? That's crazy. Speaking so. uh, speaking of, of the sickle, a tool used to cut things down to size, I think it's time to cut this podcast down to size. <laughs> you commie dictator. <laughs> I think it's time to use my awesome autocratic authority, or A, or triple A, to, uh, to bring a close to this podcast. So I'll say again, uh, if you want to add uh, something about uh, the irony of high fashion, about backstory and psychological determinism, about uh, a portrait of the artist as a young superhero, about uh, the autobiographies of comedians, about uh, parts played by women written for men, or about where, in what location you listen to the Overthinking It podcast, uh, drop us a line at podcast at overthinkingit.com or leave a voicemail at 203-285-6401. Until the next episode, next week, you can find us on the web uh, or, you know, I don't know, drooling in front of our, our TV sets watching Mad Men. Um, oh, or Shark Week. Have you seen the ad for the print ad for Shark Week? It's a guy smiling, but he has rows of, of pointy teeth like a shark. It is, <laughs> is grotesque. It, so originally, that was cast as Angelina Jolie. <laughs> Did you know that uh, that Angelina Jolie's children will sometimes devour each other in utero? <laughs> <laughs> that that uh, that and more on the next Overthinking It podcast. Until then, visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably, it probably doesn't. Oh, and wouldn't Angelina Jolie's uterus technically be Africa? <laughs> <laughs> So apparently in October of 65, uh, the Pope finally admitted that Jews were not collectively responsible for the killing of Christ. The Pope. There's a part that should be played by a woman. <laughs> this whole podcast needs more salt. <laughs> the condiments.